0: Good morning, church. Uh, excited to be with you. You all here this morning. Uh, again, I can't say it enough. I just echo and agree wholeheartedly with Pastor Mo that we have so many wonderful mothers a part of this church. And um, yeah, it's a privilege for us, even as pastors, to have so many close friends and so many children in the back who are confident to know that their mothers are doing everything within their strength. To point their children to Jesus and that is a gift not only to their individual families but that's a gift to us as a church that we get to get a picture of godly women um, instructing their children um, in the things of the Lord so um, amen thank you Wes I got one amen here um, yeah uh, uh, won't you join me as we pray to this uh, amazing God Father, we're grateful that we get to assemble freely without the threat of any persecution or opposition, Lord, and to worship your glorious name. Father, that probably wasn't on many of our minds this morning because we become so routine with coming to church and singing praises to you and hearing from your word. And um, we forget that the blessing of the we forget the blessing that you've given us here in this country to worship you freely. Father, I pray this morning, God, that you would remind us that the only acceptable and um, the only honorable approach and posture that we should have when talking to you or speaking to you or hearing from you should be that of humility. When your word is opened up, Father, we should see it as you speaking to us and reminding us of our desperate need for you. God, I just pray that our hearts would even now, be cultivated through the worship of song and through the worship of, through giving and through the reminders in our prayers that you are a holy and righteous God and that you've chosen to allow us to be part of your family. God, help us this morning. It's in moments like these where we really have, don't have any other words really to say other than help us, Lord. Would your spirit speak through your word? Would your spirit speak through me? Would I find victory and confidence in knowing that the cross is sufficient enough to do the heavy lifting? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, If you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, we've been going through a series, as Pastor Mo mentioned, in Revelations. And um, over the last past four weeks, Pastor John has done an amazing job of walking us through letters to various different churches throughout Asia. And this morning we find ourselves to one particular church, and it's called the church in Sardis. On a day like today, on Mother's Day, one wouldn't imagine that we'd be talking about a church that Jesus says is dead. But we're grateful for the providence of God, and that even if we as pastors may not have thought that this was the most relevant message for the church on Mother's Day. God's word doesn't allow us to pivot or to deflect from what God desires for his people to hear. So today we receive God's word prayerfully with humility and knowing that God knows exactly who we are as a church and he's going to use his word to instruct us and correct us and as he corrects us that shouldn't be something that leads us to despair but that should be something that leads us to greater hope and greater dependence on God, knowing that we need his help and that we are desperate for it. I want to begin our time first by asking that you would join me as we read the text, Revelations 3. And I know we sat down, but would you again stand with me briefly in honor and respect to God's word. And in verse 1, it reads as such. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. Would you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear to hear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. I want to begin our time with a quote that reads as such. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. And if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. This quote comes from an ancient military strategist whose name was Sun Tzu. This strategist had written a book called The Art of War where he describes in 13 chapters military military strategies that would help others understand the art of the title of his book, War. Though the entire quote rings true, I want to draw our attention to the last portion of it because it says that if you neither if you know neither the enemy nor yourself you will succumb in every battle. Well if we really understood that that right there is enough to preach an entire sermon on but for the sake of time let me get straight to the point. Church one of the greatest enemies to us as God's body and our family is comfort. Let me say that again. One of the greatest enemies to the church, to us individually and corporately, is the enemy of comfort. There's something about comfort that allows us to settle in and nestle in and to, in a sense, let our guards down. There's something about comfort that acts almost as a stealthily poisoned, placed in the sweetest of drinks whom we, as we drink it, we're enjoying the pleasure that it brings, but it's eroding and deteriorating our entire body without us even knowing it until it's too late. If we think about our world, the world would tell us that comfort is everything. The world would tell us that Comfort is the thing that we should strive for. Uh, It's our metric of success that we use to identify who's really killing it and who's not. Think about what we're bombarded with on a daily basis. Advertisements and commercials and magazines and YouTube ads and everything and everyone seems to be trying to convince us that we need something else. Everything and everyone tries to convince us that the life that we have is not enough, and therefore you just need to buy that one more thing. You just need to get that extra degree. You just need to spend a little bit more on that car. And it goes on and on and on. If you were to ask yourself, who would I deem as successful, you probably would go through a laundry list of sorts of what kind of car they drive and what house they live in and what vacations or trips they're able to go on. All of these things we would say, yeah, that's a successful person because of the opportunities that their comfort has provided for them. You don't even have to have the money to live a comfortable life. They have these things called credit cards and personal loans that if you can't afford something that you deem necessary for yourself, you can just take out this loan and have it right here and right now. And the reality is that all of us have been in positions where we thought that if I only had that, then I would be satisfied. The world lies to us. The world is Lying to us. But I wish I could say that this love of comfort only was out there and it wasn't in here. I wish that I could say that this is not a Christian issue, this is an out there issue, but that would make me a lie. And not only would that make me a lie, that'd make the Bible a lie. The Bible speaks explicitly about the dangers of pursuing comfort. The Bible speaks specifically in regards to the dangers for those who desire to be rich. Oh, it's quiet in here right now. Everything that our lives have been built on have been about getting the good job, the good career, the right amount of money, so that we can live the right life according to America's standard. God has something different to say to us this morning. God wants to remind us that though the world out there would try to convince you to buy into that lie, that comfort should be your primary aim, Jesus wants to remind his church today to, one, warn us against the dangers that living a life for comfort will lead us to, but also wants to show that he's so much better than anything comfort has to offer. So as we get in the text today, would you join me as we really just work through line by line these next six verses that I pray would be an encouragement but also will be a sobering of sorts to us as God's family. We're so forgetful and so we need to go to God's word to remind us of what's most important. Verse 1, he says this, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God, And the seven stars, let's stop there. If you're taking notes, my first point is just going to be this. Jesus supplies us with everything we need to be faithful as a church. Jesus supplies us with everything we need to be faithful as a church. When we think about the statement, Jesus has far more to offer us than anything comfort ever can, we've got to understand what is it that God has provided for us as a church. What is it that he's dangling for all, uh, in front of us? What does he want us to know about himself that would cause us to see him as more valuable than anything comfort could have or offer? He begins right to the angel of the church of Sardis, and he uses one particular way or describes himself in a unique way so that the church can understand him personally and intimately. Over the last four weeks, Pastor John has brought to our attention over and over again throughout Revelations 2 each letter contains a particular and unique way that Jesus describes himself. Um, so that the church can be anchored in understanding Jesus personally and intimately. In Ephesians, it's, uh, there's a similar tone or a similar introduction of sorts that he says, but he uses some different verbs. In, a, in Revelations 2, he says, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The emphasis here is on Jesus being the resurrected and risen, victorious Lord and Christ, who is in tune with what's going on with his people. It's a God who says, I'm, I'm, I'm not far and distant away. No, I'm, I'm amongst my church. I care about my church, and I'm concerned with her health. Here, though, he's saying, not that he holds the seven stars, but that he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. But what does that mean? that word has in the greek points to owning something or possessing something of sorts. Jesus is really pointing to what we call the sovereignty of God and that he owns everything. This is a picture to us to say if we're going to before we even get deal, before we deal with the issues going on in the church let me just remind you that I control it all. Let me just remind you that the church hasn't gotten out of hand or out, have, hasn't escaped my uh, awareness or even my control. I know exactly what's going on here and I'm going to respond in my own time and in my own way. Jesus owns it all, but not only does he own it all. He says, I want you to understand two things about what it is I, I want you to get, what it is I want you to grasp. So it starts with the seven stars he has the seven, I'm sorry, the seven spirits of God. What are seven spirits? Seven in the Old Testament as well as in all throughout the Bible really is a symbol of sorts for this idea of perfection, completion, fullness. So here we may get confused and say, what seven spirits is he talking about? I'm only familiar with one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. So who are these seven spirits right now that he's referring to? Well, I think to understand that, we've been constantly reminded that in order to interpret tests, or the best way to interpret God's word is to use God's word. So track it back with me, if you will, to Revelations chapter 1, verse 4. When you get there, say Amen. Chapter one, verse four says, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, um, who, who is, who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here we get this picture of these seven spirits being sandwiched in between two other persons. Let's dissect that. Who is the one who is, who was, and is to come? This is simply crash course referring to God the Father. In Exodus chapter uh, chapter 3 verse 14, God describes himself as I am that I am. It's referring to his internal nature. There is no past and no future. God just eternally exists. He is the one who was and is and is to come. But not only that, now we see the seven spirits. And we'll come back to that. But for a clear understanding, it ends with Jesus Christ and a description of who he is. So one could conclude, well, clearly, if God the Father is here and God and God the Son is here, then possibly he's referring to God, the Holy Spirit, as he mentions the seven spirits. But that may not be enough to convince you. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12 or verse two. It'll be on our screen, but it reads as such, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. Here we see the full ministry of the Holy Spirit at work. If you want to understand the spirit, you can clearly identify each point that's mentioned there seven characteristics one him coming from the father he is the spirit of the lord he is a spirit of wisdom and his primary role of or work in the church is to give us greater understanding into how we take the things we know about god and apply them to our life he gives counsel and strength and he produces fear of the lord in our hearts Jesus holds the or has the seven spirits, but not just the seven spirits. He has seven stars. The seven stars refer to God's leadership, the pastors, the godly leadership that he has put in place in his church. So why would he begin a letter talking about him holding or having for his possession both the stars, the godly leadership that he intends for his church and the Holy Spirit in the fullness of his ministry. And I think the reason for that, that we're going to find in this text is because he's trying to point them back to himself because there's a deficiency or a void of both of those things in this congregation. We have to understand, church, that God has given us everything that He needs, everything we need to remain faithful to Him, everything. And He's given us His Spirit and His full work, and He's given us leaders to help us grow in our godliness and persevere to the end. But secondly, let's let's move on. He says, "I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead." Wait a minute. Did he just say that? I thought he was talking to the church. How can the church possibly be dead? Hmm, That's a good question. I think that leads us into a warning of sorts for us as a body to understand that we are not beyond this evaluation of sorts. Jesus isn't like other people. We sung songs and we were reminded in the text that God doesn't, he's not impressed with external appearances. God sees rightly and exactly and he knows who we are. Now, the second point that I have from this text that will break down is that if we forfeit faithfulness to Jesus for the pursuit of comfort, We will be spiritually ineffective. We will be spiritually ineffective. And I'll break down why I used ineffective rather than dead. And I think that'll answer some of the confusion that we may have. But why would he tell a church that they're dead? He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. In other letters, Jesus has always started with an introduction of sorts and then that's led into a celebration. It's led into him commending the church to say, hey, I know who you are. I know what you've been doing and these are the things that you've been doing good. And then that proceeds into a warning, a criticism of sorts. In this letter, there is no commendation. There is no, hey, let me butter you up so that I can make the pill a little bit easier to swallow. If you call something dead, if a doctor looks at a person who's on their last dying breath, he's not going to butter them up with fancy words or flattery. He's going to identify the problem and specifically tackle the root of the issue at hand because he knows that if I don't speak bluntly and firmly and plainly to you, it may cost you your life. Jesus is not mincing words here and he wants them to know, let me evaluate you. Let me diagnose your problem. And we can take that one of two ways. When Jesus confronts us in his word and we see ourselves truly for who we are, a prideful heart would say, wait a minute, God, don't you know about all these other things I'm doing? A prideful heart would try to make excuses for why I am the way that I am. God, why well, only did that or didn't do that because they did this or didn't do this. Or we'll try to deflect it and we'll try to say, wait, God, you're, you're wait, you're, you're criticizing me, but man, what about that person over there? You see what they're doing? I'm not like them. Or we'll try to present a case. We'll try to justify ourselves. And so we'll have all of our good works. And then we'll try to diminish the area that we know we're deficient in humble heart hears these words and they're broken. A heart of humility hears these words from the one they call Lord and they're grieved by the fact that how is it that my Lord and Savior could say this about me? How? Where have I missed the mark somehow that God would expose me and leave me bare before him with no means whatsoever to justify myself? And then they respond in contrition and repentance to say, God, help me to turn away from this and back towards you. I want to encourage us, church that no matter how hard or heavy this indictment is, view it from the posture of God Is exposing us so that he can heal us. God is exposing this church because like the song said, God is relentless in his pursuit of us. One of the great things about God is that when we're too fearful to step into the light and confess our own sins, his grace is that he'll put us or he'll force us into the light or he'll shine that light on us so that we can't remain in our sin. We can't remain in our isolation, but so that we can be healed. It's painful. It's embarrassing. But you know what would be more painful? For him to ignore our sin, to ignore our current state, to not reveal where we are and to leave us there only to see our demise. What kind of loving person does that? God is revealing to us what has been a blind spot for an entire church. You think that because of your reputation and your platforms and your speaking engagements and your church growth and because of how big your building is and how more, how many people are attending on Sunday service and how many books you're writing and how many missionaries you're sending abroad, you think that because of all of those things that I'm impressed, they can be impressed. Those other churches think that you're alive. The world may think that you're a booming business. But guess what? You can't fool me. If we saw earlier the sovereignty of God, and another word for the sovereignty or referring to his sovereignty is his omnipotence, him being an all-powerful God, working hand in hand, his power allows him to be sovereign over everything. Now we see the omniscience of God. He's a God that knows all things. He's a God that sees all things. He's a God that you can't hide from. He sees beyond your Christian lingo and your churchy cliches. He sees beyond the nice clothes that you wear and your ability to persuade or um, interact in philosophical debates about scripture. He sees beyond your theological degrees. He sees beyond the circles or the community that you surrounded yourself with, he sees you for who you are. And for a person who doesn't know Jesus, that's fearful. For a person who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, that is a scary or should be a scary thing. But for people who know Jesus, we know that Jesus does not abandon his own. Jesus does not critique us without correcting us and leading us back towards health. Jesus is after something here and it's for our good. David describes how beautiful this God is who knows his people in Psalm 139 verses 1-4 through 4, as he says Lord you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand the thoughts You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels when I go on vacation and when I go down and rest my head to sleep. You are aware of all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. How foolish it is to try to think that we can somehow hide from this God. He knows our thoughts, he knows our motives, he knows our ambitions, he knows things that we don't even know about ourselves. Nothing can be hidden from the all-discerning eye of this holy and righteous God. You have this reputation, church, for being alive but you're dead probably on your way driving here to this church this morning, or if you've been in Atlanta for any amount of time, you probably recognize, or maybe you don't, but for me, coming from a desert climate, mostly in my upbringing and living in Texas, when I came to Atlanta, the size of the trees here were just miraculous. Like, I'm used to little twigs that have grown up maybe 10, 12 feet, but in our former home, we had a pecan tree that got to about 50 feet tall. And what's crazy about it is that people thought it was a smart idea to plant these trees within two to three feet from their homes. And so in the West End, it seems like every year while we were here, these massive trees that were in this neighborhood, when we got a lot of rain or we got some heavy winds, those trees would come crumbling down. And it would catch you off guard because you would look at these trees and from a distance you'd see the green leaves that surrounded the tree. You see how big it is and how wide it is and how if it's still remaining and it's still standing, it must be alive. But it wasn't until that tree crumbled over that you would go up to it and you'd be like, man, what was wrong with this tree? Why why did these little bit of winds and rains, why did it blow the tree over? To which you would begin to recognize that, oh, those things that you thought were leaves? No, 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 no. That was ivy. The ivy had, over the years been circling and encompassing and engulfing the tree and though it gave the appearance of life, it actually was suffocating the tree from the inside out. All of the things that the tree needed for life and sufficiency was, was being robbed and taken away from that, that ivy. But not only that, when, the, when you inspect it a little closer and you look at the core of the tree, you'll realize that the assumption that the tree had a core of firm wood, no, 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 no. When you got closer, you saw that, no, what I thought to be solid wood was actually pulp. It had been rotted from the core. So when the winds had come in and had blown the tree off, it makes completely sen- complete sense as to why that tree fell in the first place. Our external appearances will deceive the best of Christians. What we give off to others will even be impressive to those who see us on a stage and think that our lives are perfect, that we actually live up to half of the stuff that we say that we're living up up to. The caution for us, church, that we see here is that the church as a body and you individually as a Christian don't settle for appearing to be godly, but actually be godly. Actually desire to pursue godliness, even if it means your name won't be great among many. When you stand before the Lord, he's not going to care about how many Twitter followers you had. When you stand before the Lord... You're, the person that you look up most to isn't going to be there with you. The only person that you're going to have to be confronted by and testify and give an account to is God. God. And if we become so concerned with pleasing our neighbor, if we as a church even become so concerned with thinking that what the world or what this neighborhood or what this city thinks about us, that we somehow are willing to compromise our Christian integrity and witness to be accepted by them, we've missed the mark. Drive through this part of town and you'll see churches on every corner. Those churches one day were just like us. Those churches at one point probably had the same excitement and zeal for the Lord as we do right now. But now those churches look like and act like probably more like a morgue, more like a mortuary than they actually do a living, vibrant church. We're not the exception. Don't let our pride, because of the type of teaching that you hear on Sunday, because of the type of worship songs you hear, because of how banging our ecclesiology is, don't let those things convince us to think that we can't be this church. And we'll find ourselves in 10 years still talking about what we did way back then. Remember the good old days? Remember how this church was started from a handful of families moving into this neighborhood? Remember, remember that time way back then? It's been 15 years. You're telling me God ain't moved or done anything since then? You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. I mentioned earlier about comfort. Where does that even come from? How do you get comfort out of this text? And I think that the only way to make sense of this is to give you a little history of Sardis, of that city. Sardis sat about 30 to 40 miles east or southeast of the city Thyatira. We talked about that last week. Sardis was one of the most glorious cities in all of Asia. It was known as a great military power and it was known for its wealth. It was the first city excuse me, to mint gold and silver coins. It was known to have a boom in wool and dye market. Anything and everything that you can think of, a city that was was profitable and affluent and had the attention of others, this was in this city. Sardis itself thought itself to be untouchable because it sat 1,500 feet above sea level. When we hear about, in the Bible, about uh, a city on a hill, you can think of Sardis as the greatest picture. Literally climbing, looking up to it on three of its four sides were deep mountain cliffs. One way in, one way out. This was Sardis. You can only imagine that in the comfort of living in a city like that, there's no fear of takeover. There's no fear of an enemy being able to get past our defenses. We're naturally put in the position to be indefensible. However, in Sardis you had two groups of people. You had this Gentile population made up of Roman pagan culture. People who didn't grow up in the church, didn't want nothing to do with the church, worshipped all these different religions. Then you had this robust and large Jewish community. You could say that these are the church folks. This Jewish community, however, what made Sardis different was that the church there had the unique opportunity to reach both the unchurched and the church. It had the unique opportunity to, the, to reach the, re, uh, the religious and the irreligious, Jew and Gentile. But the church... Unlike in these other cities in Asia, unlike in these other cities, Sardis didn't have some of the other problems that these other cities were facing. In all of the three, uh, four previous churches, there was one common thread, persecution from outside the church or persecution from within the church. There was this uniqueness to Sardis that, yeah, I don't, we don't deal with your same struggles, but why? Why is that? Why was that the case? Well, when you have this Jewish, rich, wealthy population of people in the midst of a pagan culture, what tends to happen is is that they begin to sanitize a lot of the rough edges that were taking place in the city without them being there. Their culture begins to take over to where now um, in cities like Ephesus or um, um, some of these other cities, there wasn't this rough and intolerableness to Christian faith. Judaism was one of the religions that was legally to, legal to be practiced in the Roman Empire. In the Gospels we read about the Sanhedrin, which was a group of people who were able to freely worship God the way that they wanted to be, wanted to worship him. They could make their sacrifices, they could go to the temple, they could live freely as a Jew under the Roman Empire. But Roman control also meant that those who didn't fit under the legal religions of the time, that their consequences was death or imprisonment. There was a restraint and a control as to who could worship which god. And for Christians, in Sardis in particularly, because of that Jewish culture and because of the pagan uh, Gentile culture and how those things were kind of um, sanitized, think of it like this, um, there was a Bible belt created in Sardis. People were a little bit nicer in Sardis. People would smile at you when they walked by. People would invite you on their porch to have some lemonade. People would be concerned with your welfare, or at least pretend to be concerned with your welfare. And so for Christians, the similarities between Judaism and Christianity, for a time they were able to fool The Roman Empire, because they pretended to be more of a sect out of Judaism rather than a distinct religion. Oh, we we do read some of the main some of the same material. We do worship in similar places. We do kind of acknowledge and identify with some of the things that Judaism believes in. And so Christians could kind of fly under the radar. But until Rome began to understand that Christianity was distinct, it was separate, they didn't follow in line with Jewish practices, they were completely different, that's when persecution and every attempt to destroy them came into the picture. So church after church after church, enduring hardship. Sardis, none. So what does that do? What does a church do when there's no threat of heresy or false teachers from within? What does the church do when there's no threat of outward persecution that would cause me to live my life or lose my life? I think the church did what we all would do. They got comfortable. They said, you know what? I see if my name is out there for everybody to know. If everybody, Ephesus and Thyatira, if they know about who we are and are impressed, well, on the flip side, I have to also know what's going on in their church. So I know that they're trying to represent Jesus and they're getting killed. They're trying to represent Jesus and they're getting murdered by the sword. They're trying to represent Jesus and contend for the faith and they're having to deal with people trying to convince them that they could live any old way they want to and still claim the banner of Christianity. I know what's going on with them. You know what? I think that we're going to dial back a little bit. I think that we can fly under the radar, and I don't think that we've got to be as explicit about our Christianity as they are. Church, our, our temptation as a whole is always going to be, it would be much easier for me just to blend in. It's much easier or it's a better strategy for me just to be cool and liked by those that know, don't know Christ. Because that's going to be how we win them to the Jesus. This is the current climate of, our, of Christianity in America. This is the sweeping movement of saying, you don't have to be about telling people about Jesus. Just act like them. Don't do just just come a little bit closer but let me buddy up with them as close as I bid and just keep a little bit of morality and then hope that I can tell them about Christ there's no distinction there no distinction and you know what this has caused the church this is what, what this has reduced the church to being ineffective and irrelevant in the community and the city that God has placed them in. For some reason it seems as though the lie that we believed to think that I don't have to be distinct as a Christian I'm not seeing the results of the fruitfulness of that labor. I read the Bible and I see people being willing to call people to repent of their sins to believe and trust in Jesus, and a commitment to walk with you unless you reject me or take my life. I see that bearing a whole lot more fruit than saying I just want to have a bunch of Christian, a bunch of friends, I want to be invited to all the parties, and I want to be in the midst for the sake of being a missionary, but I'm never actually going to tell them about the Jesus that I love and care for. Jesus has called us to be Distinct. Hear this, church. The avoidance of suffering. The avoidance of suffering is the rejection of God's will for your life. The avoidance of suffering is the rejection of God's will for your life. Where do you get that from, Pastor? That sounds ridiculous. Let me show you. I don't have time to walk through all these four verses, but I'm going to give them to you. And you write them down. And then after church or sometime throughout this day, I want you to read these verses and wrestle with that tension. This idea that God promises us comfort. This idea that life is meant to be absent of any real hardship or any suffering if it means following him. Acts fourteen twenty two. it says this, though many through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 10.25, if they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. There's so many more. So many more verses on and on. And the reality is, do you even wrestle with that? Does that even make you uncomfortable enough to say, God, you, these are promises to your people. If being a disciple of you means to follow in your footsteps, why are my footsteps so easy? Why are my footsteps so comfortable? And this doesn't mean that we're going to experience persecution or suffering in the same ways that we see in the church. We live in America. There's a freeness to some degree to worship God. But do you experience any type of internal struggle? Is living a godly life, does, has that isolated you at all from anybody that you hope to reach for the gospel? Has that caused even Rifts and difficulties between relationships that you have with other Christians in this church. Let me say that again because I think that, yeah. Has that caused any ripple effects with relationships with other Christians that you have in this church? The pursuit of holiness is meant to be a iron sharpening against iron. It means that the way that we help one another grow is by inviting one another into a relationship. But also being willing to challenge them to say, God's called us to live out his scriptures, not to just know them. God has called us to live in obedience to his word, not just be able to articulate it in a clever or intelligent way. The danger of pursuing or desiring comfort will always lead to compromise. And that compromise over time will always lead to spiritual death. I didn't explain this before, but, um, or maybe I did, but just to reiterate, that word dead is not literal, spiritually dead, as if you don't know Jesus. That word literally means ineffective, useless, useless. I pray that no Christian in here today is comfortable with being useless for God's kingdom. We all desire to be used. We all desire to see our loved ones and our family members meet this Jesus. And so we want to make sure that we are putting ourselves in a place where comfort doesn't choke out the life source that God has provided. His Holy Spirit. I'm running out of time, so let me get to the next point. Um, Third point, Jesus can make dead things living things again. Jesus can make dead things living things again. He says, be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before God. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. Unlike my other pastoral counterparts, I actually like the outdoors. I enjoy nature. I like cutting the grass. I like planting trees and plants. I like designing my backyard. I like what God has created. (laughs) In planting things, though, when you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, you can go to the nursery section and they have these two types of plants. One's a annual, meaning it just survives for one year. And the other's are perennial, means that it continues to live on and on and on. Well, when Jesus, how Jesus relates to his church is he's a gardener of sorts. He's someone that is aware of every single thing going on with it, and he's going to provide it the nutrition and the care that it needs in order to survive and thrive. Jesus walks amongst his church, and um, the church isn't an annual. His church is not something that can ever die. Nothing can prevail against it. It's more like that perennial. But we got to understand something about the perennial is that the perennial is subjected to the same seasons that the annual is. The perennial, when winter comes, it's going to die back. It's going to give an appearance as if it's dead and lifeless. But if you're a gardener, you know that, oh, no, 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 that's just for a season. That plant, no, no, it's going to come back in spring. Just wait and watch. And so the gardener begins to prune the dead leaves off the gardener begins to prepare the soil by putting fertilizer on it begins to water it not too much as to drown it but just enough to feed it and bring it back to life the gardener knows that oh to everybody else that that plant looks dead and they may throw it away and discard it but to me no 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 i know how to revive that plant I know how to take care of it enough to where when it comes back to life and it springs forth, it's going to bear more fruit and be bigger and more lustrous than it was before when it started to decay a little bit. Jesus won't abandon his church. Hear that. Let me make that personal for you. Jesus won't abandon you. You can find yourself in the darkest trenches in your faith where you question everything and you feel that you're alone and you're isolated and that no one could possibly understand what you're going through and you know what that may be true of many of us in this room that I couldn't understand what you're going through but I know somebody who can Jesus knows exactly where you are and the fact that he would speak into your life means that he hasn't forgotten about you The fact that he would expose you means that he cares for you. The fact that now he will remind you to say, you're not too far away for me to bring back to life. Jesus begins, not, he follows up his diagnosis with a prescription. Five commands he gives to revive his lifeless church. He says first, be alert. In other translations, that just simply means wake up from your spiritual slumber. Wake up. Wake up. When fervence, or being fervent or zealous for the Lord has dimmed down and quieted, we need somebody to encourage us to come back to life. We need one another as a church to be able to spur one another on in love and good deeds in such a way to where we fan the flame of the coals that have gone down to simmer simmer and are even covered by gray soot. There's still something there. And we need one another to start fanning that flame and reigniting that in our lives, and that means that takes an entire community. Be alert. Start sharing your faith. And that's very simple when it comes to application. Very simple. And no one would think, the the thought that comes to mind that when I'm in a spiritually low place, I don't feel capable of sharing my faith. I don't even know if I believe that for myself. There's something about telling somebody about Jesus that triggers something in us that starts to fan and burn within us because now we've given the Holy Spirit this opportunity to start peeling back layers and opening people's eyes and reminding us of the gospel that we're struggling to believe ourselves. Share your faith with somebody. Part of our spiritual depression or spiritual lows are because we're not even, we're not telling anybody about Jesus. And that's evidence that we're struggling to believe it for ourselves, but... If you find yourself too weak to even go and tell somebody about Christ, ask somebody that you see bold and unashamed and say, can can I come with you? Can I just sit and listen? Can I just come and pray for you as you engage somebody so that I can start building that muscle back, so I can start building back that fervor and that zeal to help the spread of the gospel take place on my job and in my family and in this community. Share your faith with other people That's waking up. Second, he says, strengthen what remains. Jesus doesn't look at the whole church and presume that everybody is in this condition. He's pointing to, no, no, there's a few. There's something that remains there. There's something I see that is good. There's something I, I want to remind them to say, hey, hey, build this up. So he says, strengthen them. This is really building upon what we learned in Ephesus for the church who had left their first love. It's getting back to the basics some of us are reading books that are good and encouraging but we really need to be reading about the basics of christianity about prayer about godly disciplines about the role of the holy spirit in our life about the dangers of sin about mortification of our flesh we need to be reading things that we we first came to know when we became a christian because we're too easily we too easily forget part of strengthening weak parts is that if you go into the gym and all you work is your chest muscles and you're this big swole upper body dude but your calf muscles are like chicken legs it's time to go to work and strengthen those things forget the chest for right now let's work on the legs alright she said please and thirdly he says to remember the gospel that saved you. This is the first time he uses the word remember in his instruction to us. And we say this, I feel like, every sermon, but we continually walk pattern over and over again about the importance of remembering. I don't know about you, but when I think back about who I used to be, when I think about back about what my life looked like before I came to know Jesus... I can't help but be overcome with tears and emotions. I know that I was lost in my sins. I know that I want nothing to do with God. I know where my life would be. I would not have the family that I have, the friends that I have, the church that I belong to, the security of faith and trust in Christ. I would not have any of those things and I would be pursuing foolish and dumb stuff. But I can act as though that, well, that was way back then. I'm good, like... No, remember the gospel. Recall to memory over and over and over again what Christ has done for you. And don't stop with vague understanding. As pastors, we sit on membership interviews all the time. And over and over again, the question will come up. Share with me the gospel. And it's in those moments that people wrestle with. I don't know how to articulate what I believe. To which we are like, well, we, this is what the gospel is. And we explain it to them. They're like, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Well, what would it look like for a church to every single member to be able to articulate to other people the gospel of Jesus Christ? What would it benefit you that when you find yourself weak and frail that you can start reciting to yourself the gospel of Jesus Christ and begin to rev up affections for Christ through that? can't remember something you never knew in the first place. Reflect daily on the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. Not only reflect, but keep it in front of you. I'm just going to read this quote because it explains enough of it for us to grasp what he's mean. But this one pastor says this, The fact is, you never drift toward anything worthwhile. Never. We never slide into truth, but we can slide into error. We can slide into moral compromise. Furthermore, you don't want to drift into adding to the gospel, nor do you want to drift into subtracting from it. Keep it, hold on to it, and guard it. Never let it go. Stay with what you received and heard when you put your faith In Jesus. Keep the gospel. Preserve the gospel. Invite other people into your life that can help show you. Maybe there's things that you're believing about the gospel of Jesus Christ that now over time are untrue. We don't slide into truth. Or we don't slide. But we can slide into error. We need to take more seriously the Good news of Jesus Christ has been entrusted to us because Christ hasn't just given us his gospel to save us. He's given us his gospel to keep us. We need to be reminded of what God has done for for us precisely and explicitly so that we can endure to the end. And fifthly, he says, repent in turn. A lot of our understanding of repentance evolves around uh, feeling bad about something. We think that just because we got caught or something came to our attention and we're sad now that, oh, I've repented. That's. That could lead us towards repentance, but that's not repentance in and of itself. Repentance is seeing your sin the way God sees it, confessing it for what it really is. Doing everything that you can within your ability and strength to avoid it at all costs and running towards Jesus and being in pursuit of Him above that particular sin. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's ongoing. It's continual. If you find yourself in a place of spiritual dryness, if we as a church find ourselves depleted of real any real power of the gospel, the only reasonable response is to repent. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to justify yourself. Stop trying to convince yourself that that's not the case. Allow God right now to deal with us so that we can just be honest for once. Let us be honest for once with where we're at. God can be trusted. And lastly, I'm over my time. After an introduction, after a evaluation, a diagnosis, after a reminder of the calling back to himself that he gives to us he gives us this promise he gives us a promise that we can cling to that can remind us of the pursuit of faithfulness and jesus is far greater than anything comfort could ever offer us look in verse four he says but i have a few people in sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life. But will acknowledge his name before the Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says. If comfort is our God, then risk And costliness and suffering and anything else that would keep us from having that are obstacles to be avoided at all costs. If comfort is our God, then suffering and the risking, risking things for Jesus and all of those things, if comfort is our God and we want that most, then that means that any suffering that comes along the way is merely an obstacle preventing us from having what we truly want. However, if Jesus is our God, then risk and suffering and anything that would keep us. Anything that would keep us from having him are not obstacles. They're merely hurdles we have to get over. The promise of following Jesus will include hardship. But the greater promise is that Jesus says that if you remain faithful If you stay diligent and endure till the end, then you'll have me. You'll know me. You'll spend the rest of eternity with me. The work that I've done to save you and being willing to spill my blood for you, being willing to give my life for you. Being willing to give you my Holy Spirit to keep you as a stamp, a seal until the very end. All of those things, if you'll just be faithful to me, I guarantee the risk outweigh or the rewards outweigh the risk. Paul says, for I consider, for I consider that the sufferings of this present day are nothing to be compared to the glory that should be revealed in Christ Jesus. Do we believe that or is that just a Christian tagline? Nothing to be compared than being with our Lord. And I'll close with this. There's no perfect church out there. We as Cornerstone, we're hitting three years and there's no, there's nothing perfect about us. We are simply people who have recognized our need for a savior. We've placed our trust in him and we want to gather together to help one another grow, and as Pastor John always says, to prepare one another to stand before our maker. We need, as a body, to own the responsibility for one another, to say, I'm going to be committed to you beyond any conflict, beyond any hardship, beyond any distance, beyond any you fill in the blank. Because I want you to stand before our Lord and I want you to walk with Him and I want you to make it to the end so that you can experience what I desire to experience for myself. That is to be with my Savior, to be with my Lord. And if you find yourself in this place where you're not a Christian, you haven't placed your trust in Christ, Jesus confronts His church And that should let you know that the hypocrisy that you've seen in church, the wickedness that you've seen in church, the pastors that have fallen for moral failures, the hurt that you've experienced in church will not be an excuse for you when you stand before Christ. You won't be able to say, Jesus, I couldn't trust you because I saw such horrible examples of you. Jesus offers you the opportunity right now to place your trust in him. Don't Look at them, look at me. Jesus wants the same thing that you want. He wants to see a bride that is perfect and blameless and without spots. He wants to see the church pure. But we won't arrive there until he comes back for us and he makes all things right. We're grateful that we are the spots and blemishes that Jesus still loves. We're grateful and we acknowledge that we're the imperfect specks. We're the coffee stains on the white gown. And yet Christ is still committed to us and he still loves us and he invites all to come and know him. Jesus loves his church. Jesus is far greater than anything comfort could ever offer us. And Jesus extends invitations to broken people to say, come to me, all ye who are weary and brokenhearted, and I will give you rest. Let that rest today be in Jesus. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we're grateful again for your word. Um, Father, we're grateful that even in hard things to hear, Father, you have our good in mind. Father, I pray that the word that has gone forth would be planted in fertile soil and produce a harvest a hundredfold. Father, would we keep before us and keep on our minds the call and the challenge and the commitment that you have to us to continue to grow and pursue holiness and godliness and to remain distinct as your people. Father, we don't need the acceptance of man because we have your acceptance alone. Let that be the most important thing to us. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.